The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. You are that man. For the guy who thought he had gotten away with it, those words must have been astonishing to him. This man had spent the last few minutes standing in front of him, telling him a story. And this was the story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who does such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had been not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. One of the things that we can see in this text this morning as we are getting ready to go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the only way for us to be in right relationship with God is for us to be confronted with what Paul says in Thessalonians are, are the gaps in our lives. The things that we are missing. The things that can only be filled by God. It is these gaps that, that can prevent us if we're not cautious, if we don't deal with these gaps. It is these gaps that keep us from living the life that God has for us. I want to encourage you to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 today. And, and while you're doing that, I just want to remind you that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke took the gospel of Jesus Christ to the church at Thessalonica. We know they at least preached for three uh, Sabbaths in the synagogue. 
before they were chased out of town. So realistically, they were probably there for, for four weeks, four and a half weeks. And over the course of that time, in, in all of the preaching and all of the teaching that they had done, a number of people uh, in the synagogue, Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, not a few prominent women had converted to Christianity, had, had decided that they were going to believe this gospel message. And 1 Thessalonians is this letter that's filled with encouraging words written to the church, telling them how well they're doing in the midst of all of the hardships, all of the challenges that they're facing together. And Paul reminds them of these things and he expresses his joy. And the phrase that we've used over the past few weeks is the church of Thessalonica wasn't just surviving, but they were thriving. They were doing really well. Paul, Paul, could, Paul could point to them, but he didn't have to because everywhere Paul went, people were talking about the church at Thessalonica. They were hearing from other people about how, how well the church was doing and how encouraging the church was doing, how much they were believing the gospel. And at the, end of tour, at the end of chapter three, he says something like this. He says, night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill, in, fill the gaps in your faith. See, God has a plan and a purpose for the church at Thessalonica, and that's to proclaim Jesus. And as well as they were doing, they, they had some gaps. There were some things that were missing in their church life. And what Paul is going to write about next, or by what Paul is going to write about next, we kind of get a picture of what that looked like. As we've talked about before, when we read a letter in the New Testament, it's, it's one side of a phone conversation, right? We don't know all of the intricate details of everything that was happening at the church at Thessalonica. So what we have to do is we have to read the text with, with eyes open, with a, with a prayerful heart. And we have to try and read between the lines as to what, what was going on at the church. What were the things that they were dealing with? And last week I used the word intense to describe the language that Paul used um, in Romans, or excuse me, in First Thessalonians chapter 3. And we had a little bit of a conversation about this in our staff meeting on Monday morning. Um, and we kind of decided that maybe a better word would be passionate. Paul was passionate about what he was saying. It was the very core of his being. And sometimes we can, we can maybe read the words of Paul, and this will be really true in a few months when we hit First Corinthians there's some very passionate language in 1 Corinthians. There are times where we can hear someone being passionate with us and we, we think they're angry, we think they're mad, we think they're upset with us, when in reality, they're just operating from a place of love. And that's what Paul is doing in this text. And today, as we're reading through 1 Thessalonians 4, what I want you to listen for is I want you to listen for the passion that Paul uses around the way he's trying to teach them. One of the things that, that we encourage you to do, like with these resource guides, this is why we, this is why we create these for you, um, is when we have the text kind of broken down in this format um, and we, we're mindful and we're really paying attention to what it says, some things kind of jump out at us. And one of the things that struck me as I've been reading through 1 Thessalonians 4, just from this, is the number of times Paul refers to teaching them something. The language that he uses. 
So what I did was I just went through and I just underlined any kind of implication, either, either where it says he taught them or was teaching them or instructed them or urged them or any kind of command. I just went through and underlined it. So I'm going to kind of read this from this today in a way that, that points out that to you. Because one of the things that we want to do here at Westway is teach you how to read the Bible. You know, I've been to Bible college I get, like, I've had all the classes, I get it. And, and this kind of thing is really something that anyone can do. And I want to encourage you to read the Bible in this way. Because when something is repeated, that means it's important. And Paul has an intense, passionate focus on the importance of teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And before we read the text, I also want to remind you that this, that this letter is written to a church. Sometimes we, we read the Bible, or sometimes we read a Bible verse, and what we really think is, you know who needs to hear this Bible verse? My sinful friend. They really need to hear this Bible verse. So I'm going to share it in a way that my sinful friend will see this and, and maybe be convicted or maybe feel bad about their sin. But this is, this is written to a church. So as we read the Bible, what, what we want to be very careful to not do is apply the text to people that, to whom it doesn't apply. I don't, does that make sense? Paul's writing to a church here. So when we, when we talk in a moment about this, about this broken, flawed, sinful, sexual ethic that was existing in Thessalonica, it was happening in the church at Thessalonica. We have to, we have to wrap our mind around that. Paul is, Paul is holding a mirror up to the church at Thessalonica. So as they're reading this, what he wants them to do is understand he's talking to them. He's not giving them ammo to share with all of their non-Christian friends. He is talking to them. So let's read the first couple verses here from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already. And we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember that we taught you by the authority of Jesus. So a key phrase in that, in those two verses, is in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you remember what we've talked about for earlier from 1 Thessalonians, the way Paul talked about bringing the message of the gospel to the church at Thessalonica was, these aren't my words. We weren't bringing to you my words. We weren't bringing Silas's words or Timothy's words or Luke's words. We were bringing you God's words. We are bringing you the words of Jesus. And just as you received those words, that's what 1 Thessalonians 2 tells us, they received those words as words from the Lord, not from Paul, not from Silas, not from Timothy, not from Luke. What, what you're going to need to do here in, in what I'm about to tell you in, in these gaps, what you're going to need to do here is you, you, church, Thessalonica, you are going to need to remember 
that these words, this instruction is coming from Jesus. It's not, it's not coming from me. It's coming from Jesus. And the overall gap, if we were to just look at verses 1 and 2, the overall gap is they have been taught a set of certain things that they were supposed to do as followers of Christ, and they weren't doing them. That's the overall gap. They, and again, like, this is hard, right? Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're there for maybe, maybe four weeks, maybe five weeks at the most. So, so we have all kinds of questions. How much can someone teach over the course of just four or five weeks? I imagine that, that, that the time when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were in Thessalonica, I imagine it was a bit, a bit of drinking from a water hose. Right? They're just, every time they get together, they're just dumping the whole bucket of theology on them, telling them who Jesus is and how, how Jesus wants them to live and what their lives should look like. And they're just constantly telling them all of this information. They gave them a lot. So their issue was not that they hadn't been taught. The issue was with what they were doing in response to what they had been taught. And I think this is one of those times for us as as people who read the Bible, you know, when we wonder what, what we're supposed to do with it, this is an indication of when the Bible is timeless and timely. Right? It's, it's written to them. It's written for us. And I think if we were all, if we were all honest with one another as we think about the Christian life, um, the challenge is not very often that we haven't been taught correctly. The challenge is very often that we haven't done what we've been taught. We haven't been obedient to what we've been taught. And we see that just in real life. A couple weeks ago, we, we had the Summit Golf Tournament and Zane Carr, um, I think that was Zane's fifth time ever playing golf. And it was myself and Dallas and Miles Jones with him. And, I, and I've been playing golf since I was a kid. And f at some point, I want to say maybe seven or eight holes in, Zane hit the ball, and then he kind of looked at us, and he's like, all right, I can pick on him because he's not in here. Um, oh, he is there. Oh, hi, Zane. <laughs> at some point, he said, you say, he said something like, like, what am I doing wrong? Right? Like, what, like, what's the issue? And the funny thing is, I'm in no position to tell anyone how to play golf, okay? Just to be clear. Because I don't do what I know I ought to do. So I, I mean, so each one of us kind of had a little tip to give, a little tip to share. And we can know these things, but if we don't apply them, then it doesn't matter. Like, I think I would be a much better golfer than I am if I actually did what I knew I was supposed to do. And it's just life. So Paul is addressing these, these gaps with this, with this church. So Timothy has, has gone back to Thessalonica. He's returned. He's given Paul a report. And now Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to pen this response back to the church at Thessalonica. And this letter is a great example of grace and truth, of speaking the truth in love. What we've seen now for three chapters is, is love. You guys are doing great. You're doing wonderful. Everything I hear about you is fantastic. I'm so encouraged by you. It's so wonderful that, that God used us to proclaim the gospel message um, to you, and you were obedient. But there are a couple gaps. 
there are a few things based on what Timothy has told us, there are a few things that you're missing. And in chapters four and five, um, the gaps in the lives of the Thessalonians had to do with three main things. Their sexual ethic, their idleness, especially but not limited to the way it related to Jesus returning. And I'm going to explain that one in a couple minutes. And then lastly, their intense focus on the return of Christ. These three things were gaps in the life of the church in Thessalonica. They were doing well, but they had some gaps. So he's going to address them. See, Paul's going to teach them. He's not, he's not going to not address it. He's not going to not talk about it because it's, it's not polite to talk about such things. He's going to address it. Let's read. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Again, listen to, listen to the instructions, listen to the commands. God's will is for you. I'm going to go back to two. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins, as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not, obeying human, is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you hear that language again of Paul? These aren't my words. If you don't like this sexual ethic that I'm, that I'm communicating to you, church at Thessalonica, then you're not listening to what God says. As we've already warned you, as we've already talked about it. So in the first century Greco-Roman world, they had a sexual ethic. And, and in part, this was it. Um, homosexuality was tolerated as a sexual ethic. Roman marriage law, uh, Roman marriage law allowed husbands to have mistresses, but wives were not allowed to have someone they could go and cheat on their husband with. That sounds unfair, doesn't it? Well, that's good. I'm glad you, th I'm glad you see the disconnect there because this, because the sexual ethic that God is giving is no one should cheat on anyone. The fix to a faulty sexual ethic that only allows males to cheat on their wives is not a sexual ethic that allows females to cheat on their husbands. That's not the fix. The fix is, this is, this is passion. The fix is, no one should cheat on anyone. That's the fix. Female slaves were often used to satisfy sexual desires. And prostitution and forms of pornography were rampant. So because Paul is, and this is the thing that we need to get, because Paul is addressing these things, because of all of the topics that Paul could possibly talk about in his, in his litany, in his list of topics, he's talking about this for a reason. Because what's happening is this, this Greco-Roman sexual ethic, this false sexual ethic is creeping into the church. Paul talked about it with them when he was there. 
My guess is Timothy talked about it with them when he was there. And now Paul is putting pen to paper and he's going to talk about it here as well. He's going to correct them. And the short version of this is once you are converted to Christianity, this, this sexual ethic that, that the Greco-Roman world was all familiar with, it just had to go. It was completely incompatible with what God was calling his people to. They were not allowed to be in the same space together. And while Paul is talking very specifically about adultery, the, the word that he's using, um, the NLT has a sexual sin. Maybe your translation of the Bible is going to say sexual immorality. The Greek word that's used there is porneia. And, and that's, been, um, that's been translated into sexual immorality, sexual sin. And it's kind of a blanket word. It's kind of a catch-all word that, that all sorts of behaviors get pushed under this word, this Greek word of porneia. And the interesting thing about the Bible in the way that it defines sexual immorality or sexual sin or porneia is there are a few spaces where there's, where there's some short lists. But what's most interesting about the way the Bible defines sexual morality is the examples that it gives. So whenever there's a faulty example, whenever things go bad because of human sexuality, that's sexual immorality. Whenever things go good, whenever something that's lifted up, something that's elevated... That is a biblical morality of what sexual, our sexual ethic ought to look like. And what the Bible reveals throughout example after example after example, I would encourage you just to start in the Old Testament. This is one of those topics where I just, I've heard someone else talk about it this way, like they just wish the Bible didn't talk about these things. And we live in this really crazy world where it's all our culture wants to talk about, and the church feels like we can't talk about it. And that's like, that's not what we're going to do here. So the Bible defines like the biblical sexual ethic. The biblical sexual ethic is monogamous, one male, one female marital relationship. That's the ethic. That's it. And anything, anything outside of that category any behavior outside of monogamous, one man, one woman, marital relationship would fall under the category of porneia. Sexual sin, sexual immorality, anything. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's warning them. He's calling them to an ethic that is going to honor God. And he does it for a couple interesting reasons. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. See, now that's what it says. But if we were to take a step back and look at the principle, what we would see is a sexual ethic other than the Bible harms and cheats other people. It robs from them. It takes something from them. And my guess is if we, if we would think for a moment 
And it would probably just take a moment. Think of all of the people that, that you're in relationship with that have functioned outside of what this biblical ethic is. And my guess is you'll think of at least one person and probably more than one whose life has been completely shipwrecked by not living in accordance to this. And it doesn't have to be everybody. But my guess is you can think of people who have lived outside of this and their, life, their lives have been shipwrecked. Because they saw what God wanted them to do and they did something else. And that's always trouble. That always takes us down a path away from God. And as I've been, as I think about what this, what this looks like for us, and I don't remember where I heard, heard this quote from, but I think one of the reasons that we have such a problem with this sexual ethic of what God is calling us to, I think the, pro, the reason is, is we think we are more moral than God. We think we know better than what God knows when it comes to his design and his purpose for our lives. And God is infinite. God is omnipotent. We don't know better than God. We are not more moral than God. So Paul is addressing this issue with the church because he wants them to understand that this, this gap of their sexual ethic is preventing them from making disciples of Jesus Christ. Because people who are then going to come into the church and, and they're going to see someone sleeping with someone else's wife. Question, if you're a married man and you bring your wife into the church and you know that other people are sleeping around with other people's wives, at what point are you going to wonder, well, when are they going to get to my wife? See, this is, this is real stuff here. What are, the, what are the thoughts going on behind our own eyes? How are we treating one another? And what Paul is calling them to is a different mindset. He says, we warned you. God is going to avenge these sins. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. And you're not just disobeying me. You're not just disobeying human teachers. You're disobeying God himself. And he's calling this church to live in a way where they are exhibiting self-control. Where they are controlling their own bodies. They're not controlled by them. And see, one of the things I know, because like, I know how many people are in this room. Sexual sin in our culture is absolutely pervasive. It's off the rails. It's everywhere we look and even, in, like, even where we don't want to look. It's just, it's just everywhere. And what God is calling us to through Paul in this letter to the church at Thessalonica is to control ourselves because of who Jesus is. Because there's a better way to live. I'm not sure that I've ever shared this before. So growing up, I was introduced to pornography at a very young age. And like that was a real, okay, I'm old. And that was a really long time ago. And, and, and there, are, there are times where, where that, I mean, that sin has been dealt with. It's been forgiven. 
found freedom. And, and there is still times where it doesn't feel very free. And what God wants for us is to live lives where we control ourselves. And that's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you today, if, like, this is, if this is pushing all of your buttons for whatever reason, I would encourage you to have a conversation with someone about this, to talk to someone about this, because sexual immorality, sexual sin is not God's plan for your life. God has a much better design for you. And there are people who, who are free from that and have experienced peace and comfort from that. Regardless, like whatever's outside of that circle, whatever, whatever the thing is that you are wrestling with or you are struggling with, I want you to know that there's a way to deal with that. And that way is through Jesus Christ. The way is to recognize that it's a sin. And this gap of a broken sexual ethic will hinder our ability to proclaim Jesus as Lord. It will get in the way. For years, this gap got in the way of my ability to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And we don't want to live in that way. Let's read verses 9 to 12. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers through Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. Paul's continuing this vein in this short text and encouraging them. He's praising them for their love. What he's saying is a healthy church obeys God's word and you are called to love people. You are called to serve people. And I don't, you know what? That's one thing. That's not a gap. Isn't that good news? for the church of Thessalonica. One less gap for them to deal with. Their love for one another is strong. And then verse 11. Last week when we were talking about this in staff review, Cody said that verse 11 is an introvert's dream verse. Right? Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. And it may be the introvert's dream verse, but this text is not calling you to a life of idleness. This text is not calling this to a life of retreat, of solitude, of not spending time with other believers. Just as we avoid sexual, or just as when we avoid sexual immorality, we show love for others by not harming them. We love others when we work hard and we mind our own business. That's actually a way to love other people. There's this, this Greek thought that Paul is kind of dealing with here in their literature. And essentially, there's, the phrase was, don't make trouble in society. 
right? So when he's, he's tapping into their culture, he's saying, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your hands. Don't cause trouble in society. Be good neighbors. Mind your business. Don't be a nuisance. Don't cause social problems. See, that's, that's what it means. That's what Paul is getting at here. This is a gap at the church in Thessalonica that they're dealing with. See, God's people had work to do. They had a, mom- a mission to fulfill. They had a purpose to be about in their lives. And that mission and purpose was to tell other people about Jesus. And it may be that they were looking so much forward to Jesus' return that they just got lazy. When we, when we read through 1 Thessalonians 5 next week, and, and Paul talks more about this in 2 in Thessalonians, kind of the, 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 the people who write commentaries think, because they're so focused on the return of Christ, that they don't think they have any work to do. Maybe we would say it as, we're saved anyway, so what's the use? I'm just biding my time here. And what Paul is saying is, no, you have, you have work to do. And this is a good witness to those around us. See, when we are faithfully working, when we're faithfully serving, when we're faithfully living out the life that God has for us, other people who aren't Christians are going to see that and they're going to notice. You know what they don't notice? When we post blaster posts on Facebook. Like they just scroll right past that. No one notices those things. What people do notice is when we love, honor, and serve other people in a way that is unexpected. In a way that's contrary to what our culture says. So if we want to get the correct kind of attention, the kind of attention that points people to Jesus, what we want to do is we want to work hard. We want to work hard to love and serve and honor other people and build other people up. We want to be the person who's quick with the encouraging word, not the sarcastic, discouraging word. That's what's going to set us apart as Christians. That's what's going to be the difference maker in our relationships with people who don't know Jesus. Idleness and laziness is not only a poor witness, but it's discouraging to those who are working hard. We've all probably been in that group in school or on that team where we're doing all of the work and other team members aren't participating. Can we all relate to that situation? See, we have a mission and a purpose. And when we refuse to enter into the spaces that God calls us to, that's going to be a discouragement to those who are working, to those who are trying to be honest and trying to fulfill God's mission and purpose for their lives. So this idea of laziness and idleness is a gap that this church in Thessalonica. And then there's the rest of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is one of those times we talk about this. We've talked about this in the past. The end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is one of those spaces where the person that broke down chapter and verse divisions, um, I don't know what they were thinking. Because if you, it wasn't Paul. 
because we have this text that where Paul begins to talk about the return of Jesus. And then someone decided like right in the middle of a thought to begin chapter five. These are the kind of questions that that chap, the end of chapter four deals with. What about the believers who have died or who will die before Jesus comes back? How can I know that Jesus hasn't already returned? Did I miss it? What's going to happen after Jesus comes back? When is all of this going to happen? And, and you can imagine that all of this, all of this anxiety and over-focus on the return of Jesus, you can imagine that that's going to get in the way of them sharing the gospel with people. Because they're so concerned that they're, not going to, that they're going to miss the return of Jesus. That when they get together, they're not talking about how they can love one another or how they can serve one another, or how they can encourage one another. All of their conversations are wrapped up in when is Jesus coming back? When is Jesus? Yeah, but when is Jesus coming back? Yeah, I know we should be nice to people. I know we should love them. I know we should work with our hands. When is Jesus coming back? This is what's going on in the church. And as I'm reading through this chapter, and we talked about this also last week, um, I was reminded that Paul didn't write this to me. I think the thing I said was, I think Paul could have written this better to make it easier to preach. And it was Cody or Jim, one of them said, well, he didn't write it to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually not going to finish chapter four today. Because I want to deal with this end times return of Jesus talk all at one time next week. I'm going to add this to what we're going to discuss next week. And here's what I want you to know for today. I want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose for you and for us as a church here in Scotts Bluff. And that plan and that purpose is to tell other people about Jesus, is to live in such a way that other people see who Jesus is. They see the way that we treat one another, the way that we love, honor, and serve one another, the way that we treat them, the way that we love, honor, and serve them. And they don't want to be loved, honored, and served in the way that the world loves, honors, and serves them. What they will see that as is faulty, and they'll see something true in us. And what we need to know today is if we're not careful, these gaps of our sexual ethic, if we allow the world's sexual ethic to creep into the church, that gap will hinder our ability to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And our idleness our refusal to join in God's work will be a gap that will hinder our ability to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We have to see these things. And today, what I'm just going to ask you to do is to do the thing that David did when he was confronted by Nathan with his gaps with his sin. I'm just going to invite you to repent. And if you're in a space where, where, your, where your sexual ethic has, 
has separated you from God, has separated you from other people because it's not God's sexual ethic, I want you to, I want you to take that to Jesus. When we say repent, that's, that's what we mean. I mean, we want to take that to Jesus. We want to give that to Jesus. And then we want to pursue holiness. We want to pursue a new life. And I know sexual sin is, it's a beast. Creates shame. It creates guilt. Makes us feel like we're the only people who deal with this. And the only way around it is to deal with it, is to confront it, is to bring other people into your life who are going to hold you to account for it. Take control of your lives. And then secondly, if laziness or idleness is a gap, I want you to take that to Jesus. I want you to bring your refusal to join in what God is doing to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. Why Jesus? Why would we take that to Jesus? What is, what is he going to do? There's this great text in the book of Hebrews that I've talked about so many times with so many people over the last month. So then, since we have a great high priest who entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. See, when we go to Jesus and we bring these things to him, we don't find guilt or shame or condemnation or anger or disappointment. Find mercy and grace. Isn't that good news? See, our world is waiting to uncover a tweet that you sent 10 years ago or something you posted on Facebook 15 years ago. Like that's what our culture is waiting for. And God says, bring those things to me. And I'm not going to uncover that 10 years from now and shove this in your face and say, why were you so stupid? No, I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you grace. And later in Hebrews, the author writes this, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all times. This is why we go to Jesus. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. See, our gaps are filled in when we acknowledge our sin, when we take it to Jesus and we receive his mercy and grace. That's the fix you have your communion elements, I would love for you to take that out. Maybe you're, maybe this is your first time. 
And you see we're taking communion today. Maybe you've been here for a while and you've had the thought in your mind, why, why, does, why does Westway take communion every week? Well, we're doing this today and we do this every week because we are remembering what I just read in Hebrews. We are remembering, we are celebrating the reason that we have this freedom. The reason that we don't have to be mired and and wallowing in our guilt and shame because of what Jesus has done for us. We are remembering the grace. We are remembering the mercy. It says, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who were being saved. By it, our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for our sins, good for all time. See, Jesus was the high priest who was also the sacrifice. He gave them bread and he said, this bread is my body that's been broken for you. Take and eat. And he gave them the cup and said, this cup is my blood that's been poured out for you. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that you love us enough to point out the gaps in our lives. You love us enough to love us where we are and call us to live somewhere else. Call us to live in a place that's better for us. And I pray, Lord, that whatever whatever tension these verses may, may leave us with today. I pray that we would ask the question, why do these verses call me, cause me tension? What does that say about my willingness to be obedient to you? Where there's gaps, help us to repent and help us to walk freely in the mercy and the grace that you give us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.